Lord, everything we were just singing, we meant it. And even if we didn't, if we just said it and didn't really mean it, would you still make it happen? Would you show us your glory? Would you renew our minds? Would you speak truth to us through your holy word? We pray in your name. Amen. This is something Jesus said. Luke has mentioned the Sermon on the Mount a couple of times this morning. Toward the end of that sermon, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's easier to say that we believe in Jesus than to actually change the way we live because of what he has said. It's, it's easier to say it than to practice it. Jesus recognized that, and a man named James recognized this in the community of Jewish converts to Christianity where he was a leader in the first century. Now, before we go any further, um, there's more than one James in the New Testament. So let's, let's uh, cover them by their nicknames. This is sort of their traditional descriptions in church history. James the Greater was an apostle of Jesus. He's the brother of John. They were both sons of a man named Zebedee, sometimes called the Sons of Thunder. That's that James. That is not the James that we're going to be talking about this morning. And uh, then there's a guy named, if there's James the Greater, you can guess that there's also going to be a James the Less. Now, what an unfortunate nickname, right? Hi, I'm Jimmy the Inconspicuous, or, you know. So this is, a, this is a, a name that meant either that he was younger or smaller. Nobody knows exactly which, maybe both. Um, and he also was an apostle of Jesus. Among the 12 apostles that Jesus called, there were two Jameses. There's James the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, James the greater, and then there's James the lesser. Um, and he's the son of a man named Alphaeus. And um, that's not the James we're going to be talking about this morning. There's another James called James the just. He wasn't an apostle of Jesus. He was one of the brothers of Jesus. And uh, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, you would find a reference to several of the brothers of Jesus, and their names are given, and one of them is James. And that James, James the Just, he became known as, because of his righteousness, especially committed to prayer, uh, was a leader in the church in Jerusalem in the first century. And as he led this community in Jerusalem of of Jewish people who had become followers of Jesus, he began to see that in that community there were people who were saying they had faith in Jesus, but they weren't living it out. That community was undergoing a particular time of conflict as well. Conflict between rich and poor in the Jerusalem area, outside the church. 
but it was spilling over into the church. And so within the church that James is addressing, there's this problem of favoritism toward the wealthy and discrimination against the poor, leading to anger. And so the book of James talks a lot about anger and leading to division. The book of James talks a lot about peacemaking as a result. To help heal some of those problems, James applies the themes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So here is the book of James is, is the brother of Jesus, having become a follower of Jesus, saying, you know when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount? Let's practice what Jesus preached. That's the book of James, and we're going to hear a selection from it now. Today's scripture reading is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you've ever been to the British Isles, you've probably seen something like this. Fields, pastures, surrounded by stone fences. And over time, you, you, you get to a place where you, what stands out is the fences. And yet we forget that those fences got there because people were clearing the land in order to create a pasture, to graze animals, or to, to plant crops. And as you clear the land, you hit rocks. And you have to move the rocks so you can grow the crops. And um, the book of James is a bit like that. It, it's intended to help us grow some crops but we're going to hit some rocks along the way, and we've got to deal with those. Now, the rocks shouldn't, shouldn't make us forget the main purpose of the book is to grow something. <laughs> um, and so today, we'll, we'll deal with both the rocks and, and the crop. We'll, we'll ask a couple different questions about this part of the New Testament. It's five chapters. It's a, a letter uh, in form, but it's 
It's snippets from sermons where James was apparently preaching through the Sermon on the Mount and applying it to the lives of the people that he led. So we're going to ask the question, here's the rock in the field. Is the gospel absent from James? The gospel is good news that redemption comes by God's grace through faith in Christ. Is that gospel message missing in this book? That's probably the first question that many people have about this book, if they know anything about it at all. They, they've kind of heard, wait a minute, I, I thought James doesn't really preach the same message as the rest of the New Testament. Why is it even in here? All right, we've got to get that rock out of the field, and then we'll grow a crop. How is the gospel present in James? So let's start with that question, is, is the gospel absent from the book of James? Well, short answer, no. But um, we're going to take my word for it. We don't have to. Let's look at the relationship between James and Jesus. So if you read through the letter of James, five chapters, the name Jesus only occurs two times. The title, Christ, only occurs two times. The word Lord occurs four times as a title for Jesus. It occurs more than that, but in some cases it's pretty evident that it's a title for God the Father, not for Jesus, the Son of God. So you find the word Lord more times than that, but, but there are four places in the book of James that it clearly refers to Jesus. And you don't find the word gospel at all anywhere. Five whole chapters. And so some people hear that and they're like, oh man, this doesn't look like it's a Christian writing at all. Um, well, let's, let's be a little more thoughtful about it. The Sermon on the Mount, which was preached by Jesus, is longer than the book of James. 13% longer. Some of us know things like this, say the Sermon on the Mount is roughly 2,200 words in Greek, and the book of James is roughly 1,800 words in Greek. Something like that. Um, So it's longer, the Sermon on the Mount is longer than the book of James, and yet the, word, the name Jesus only appears once in the Sermon on the Mount. The title Christ or Messiah doesn't occur at all in the Sermon on the Mount. The word Lord only occurs, well, it's four times, but it's Jesus repeating the same thing twice. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, I never knew you, because you, you say you trust me, but you don't actually trust me. And, well, how do you know that? Well, many have said to me, Lord, Lord, but they don't do the will of my Father. So only in those two places does Jesus use the title Lord about himself in the Sermon on the Mount. And the word gospel isn't found anywhere in the Sermon on the Mount. James writes like Jesus talks. And a lot of times, people have forgotten that. <laughs> and they expect the book of James to read differently. And they don't recognize, hey, if, if this is G James, brother of Jesus, trying to unpack and unfold the implications of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and apply it to the people he's leading, who are Jewish Christians, a lot like those audiences Jesus was first preaching to, it's not going to surprise us that James 
talks like Jesus talks. And then when you write down the words James said, James writes like Jesus talks. Similar audience, Jewish people drawn to, to uh, Jesus as the Messiah. Very similar purpose, applying the themes of the Sermon on the Mount to the real issues of day-to-day life. Was the gospel this good news that redemption comes into our world by the grace of God through faith in Jesus as the Messiah? Was that gospel message present in the teaching of Jesus? Yes. It's also present in the book of James. James writes like Jesus talks. Let's talk about James and Paul. Again, James did not write his epistles so that we would talk about these things, right? He wrote to grow a crop. He he wrote to produce some fruit. But along the way, we put some rocks in the field, and one of those rocks is, hmm, James doesn't talk about Jesus enough, or James doesn't talk about the gospel enough. Well, what's the standard we're using? When we compare the teaching of James to that of Jesus, we see, oh, hmm, okay, James writes like Jesus talks. What about the relationship between James and Paul? To a lot of readers, this letter of James has seemed legalistic. Most famously, Martin Luther, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation. By the way, happy Reformation Day, October 31st, 1517, was the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on Facebook. Um, The Facebook of his day was the local church door, right? That was the thing you did when you wanted people to read your post. And uh, so that happened on, um, that's why we give out candy to kids, because of Martin Luther. Wait a minute, I think I'm getting my history confused somewhere. But all that to say, if you have a bow tie with jelly beans on it and you can't wear it today, when can you wear it? So, um, you know, candy-themed holidays, it's time to break out the the jelly bean bow tie. Uh, Martin Luther felt that the book of James uh, didn't talk enough about the gospel. And uh, especially when he read... A verse like this and and maybe you've heard this before and and when you hear it you're like oh that sounds so different from other things I've heard James chapter 2 verse 24 says this you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone what I I thought I thought we were made right with God uh, by faith alone and not by the good things that we do and this seems to say just the opposite of that, what we've got to realize is that James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, when they write about faith and works, they are addressing two very different problems. Paul is addressing the question of, well, I'll put it up here so we can keep it straight. What is the true object of faith? When I am trusting something to make me right with God, what am I trusting? What is the object I'm putting my trust in? Is it what Jesus has done? Or is it what Jesus has done plus what I do? What is the true object of Christian faith? What is it we're called to put our trust in? Because some people were saying around Paul and his ministry, 
I have faith in Jesus, but that's not enough. I have faith in Jesus, and now I have to also be circumcised, or now I have to also keep these dietary laws, or now I have to also be a great person. And the true object of my faith is this combination of what Jesus did and what I will do. And Paul is writing, saying, no, 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 no. We, we are not made right with God by trusting that combination. We are made right with God by trusting what Jesus has done. Faith alone in Christ alone. It's one of the major themes of a lot of Paul's writings because that was the problem Paul was dealing with. James is dealing with a very different problem. James is asking the question, If somebody claims to have faith in Jesus, what is the best way to test whether that claim is true? Because Jesus himself said, some will say, Lord, Lord, who never really knew him. So some people will claim to have faith in Jesus, but we can't assume that's true. What's the best way to evaluate that question? That's a very different kind of question than Paul was wrestling with in some of his letters. Um... Also, if we had more time for a real nerd moment, I would tell you that the the word translated justify in James 2.24 can be translated in three different ways, um, and all of them are present in the New Testament. And so I I, I don't think we help ourselves in in the, the way that some of our translations don't reflect that nuance. So it, it makes the contradiction between Paul and James seem, seem like it's there when it, it actually isn't. They're addressing two different problems. They're using one key word in two very different ways. James is addressing this question of if somebody says they have faith and they say that's enough, I can just say it and you ought to believe it, even if I keep on living like I never met Jesus. Well, that's a very different kind of problem. Jesus recognized that problem. We already read from uh, Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21, where Jesus said, You know, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, really knows me as their Lord. And so Jesus says, Here's a great, great way to test that claim. Is this a person who also does the will of my Father who is in heaven? A few verses later in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. James is addressing the same kind of problem that Jesus was when Jesus said those words. The gospel message is present in the book of James. It's applied to a different problem in a different community than Paul was working with, so we shouldn't be surprised that it sounds different. Is the gospel present in the book of James? Answer is yes. Yes. James writes like Jesus talks. So, here's Matthew 7, 21. Jesus speaking about this issue. How do you, how do you evaluate somebody's claim to faith? And I got it wrong on the slide. This is Matthew 7, 24. How do you evaluate the claim when somebody says... I believe Jesus spoke to that. James speaks to that. James speaks to that as part of a larger rhythm. How is the gospel present in the book of James? It's present as part of this rhythm. The first 
beat of the rhythm is hopelessness. Listen to what James said about the human heart just in those few verses we heard read earlier. Look at the condition of the human heart according to James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, We are not naturally quick to hear. We are not naturally slow to speak. We are not naturally slow to anger. If we were, he wouldn't have to tell us to be that way. Instead, naturally, we're pretty quick to shut our ears to what others are saying, and we're pretty quick to let everybody know what we're thinking, and we're pretty quick to anger. Verse 20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We are a people whose hearts are filled with anger. We have short fuses, and when we go off, it hurts people who are around us. Verse 21 says that we're a, we're a people, human beings. Uh, are, we are full of moral filth. Filthiness is the word used here. Rampant wickedness, James mentions. We're the kind of people who can deceive ourselves, verse 22 says. We can deceive ourselves and say that hearing what Jesus says is enough. We don't actually have to do it. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that the gap between what we say we believe and what we actually live is okay. It's okay to live with that gap. We can deceive. We are capable of that level of self-deception. Uh, verse 23 uses this image of looking in a mirror, right, and uh, forgetting what you look like immediately. We're, we're that good at, at kind of uh, forgetting what's important in terms of morality, spirituality, religion. Um, verse 26 reminds us that we're the kind of people as human beings who can say we are good religious people while destroying people with our words, our tongues, our speech. Now, I know James is using the image here of the tongue, but I I believe he'd be okay with us applying that to written words, words made up of characters we text or email to others. We're the kind of people who can say, no, I'm I'm a good Christian, while destroying other people with our words. We're the kind of people, according to verse 27 whose religion is impure and defiled, who can ignore the needs of orphans and widows in our midst and wind up staining ourselves with the kind of moral filth that's in the world around us that's hostile to God. It's a pretty hopeless depiction of what we are like. Um, I'm going to use a different metaphor than the mirror one because this week as I was studying this, I just kept coming back to this. I'm a dog owner, so forgive me for going here, but if you're a dog owner, you, you get it. James says we're like people who step in dog poo. Yeah, I said if you're a dog owner, you'll get it, right? We're like people who step in dog poo and then track it all over the house, grinding it in the carpet, 
getting it all over the newly mopped kitchen floor. And the whole time we're walking around going, something smells. What's that smell? What's that smell? Something smells. And we have no clue that we're spreading this filth ourselves. Right? That's the picture James is painting. It's the person who can smell something but have no idea the smell is radiating from me. I am the one who is full of this moral filth. I am the one who is capable of saying, oh, you know what? I keep myself unstained from the world. I, I've never been drunk. I don't watch anything that's impure for my eyes. I, I'm very careful when it comes to sexual sin. I... I don't like to listen to foul language. I keep myself unspotted from the world. I've never lifted a finger to meet the need of my neighbors. That kind of dichotomy in our lives is, is awful. What's that smell? Oh, it's me. Now, some of us are made up of different you know, we lean into things differently. So if you're a little more religiously, socially conservative, then you're probably wrapped real tight about stay unspotted and unstained from the world, and you might be slow to meet the needs of your neighbors. And some of us are like all about, we're activists. I am going to meet the needs of those who are around me. I'm going to wallow around in a whole bunch of spiritual filth along the way, but man, I'm going to take care of the needy. And what is James saying to us? He's saying, it's not either or, guys. It's both and. It is both and. Jesus is calling you to the thing you love and the thing you don't love. Jesus is calling you to the thing you're naturally good at and the thing you're not naturally good at. Jesus is calling you to a supernatural kind of transformation. That won't always be comfortable, and it will pull you outside of your natural giftings or talents, right? Some of this is generational. Like, like um, the generation of Christians I grew up around, they would be totally offended at the way my kids talk and the way your kids talk, <laughs> right? Because there's a whole bunch of cussing going around these days, and, and the generation of Christians I grew up around would be like, ah! <laughs> Now, those same Christians might have also been slow to meet the needs of other people. Younger generation, going to be real motivated to meet needs. Not going to recognize the dog poo on the shoe as quickly, right, sometimes. Jesus would say, it's all poo, right? It, it all smells. If, if I, I'm calling for something bigger than what your generation is comfortable with. I'm calling for something bigger than what your natural DNA makeup draws you to. I'm calling for a kind of change that is totally impossible. Hopeless apart from Christ. Now, that ought to, that ought to encourage us in the sense of... Um, yeah, there's no place in the Christian community for arrogance. Because if what I'm up against is so big, it's so much greater than what I could prefer or what I could do comfortably within my own resources, then there's no room in our community for arrogance toward other people. 
even pe people who's, who may be weak in an area where we're strong, we still are standing on common ground, which is why James talks about receiving the word Verse 21, with meekness, meekness toward one another. Well, that's the first part of the gospel rhythm in the book of James. is to show us how much we need God's grace because apart from that grace, we're utterly hopeless. We can't even recognize how blind we are without God's grace. And then there's this theme of redemption that runs, out, runs throughout the book of James. Now, when you hear it, it will not sound like the book of Romans or the book of Galatians. It won't sound like the Apostle Paul. It won't sound like the Apostle John. James wasn't an apostle. He was working in a different context. It's going to sound different, but listen to what James says. Verse 21, he seems to think that it's possible for us to make progress in putting away filthiness and rampant wickedness. So it's not entirely hopeless. And we can receive as a gift the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Salvation is possible. Redemption is possible. Yeah, it's so bad that sometimes we're like people who look at ourselves in the mirror and walk away and are like, what? <laughs> you know? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus on Sunday morning and then what? Who, who Jesus what? I got to change the way I live because of Jesus? What? Yeah, it can be that bad, but redemption is possible. There is a, a word, a message that has been planted in your hearts. It came from outside of you. Remember Jesus' parable of a farmer who goes about scattering seed on the ground. And some of that seed is eaten by birds, and some of that seed takes root in good soil and it flourishes and it grows fruit. That implanted word, that message about who Jesus is and what he has done in our world can redeem us. So, James doesn't use the word gospel, but he talks about the gospel a lot. He just uses different phrases than you're used to hearing, like implanted word, or back in verse 18, God brought us forth by the word of truth. God gave us birth by the word of truth. Well, that sounds like the Apostle John, right? You must be born again. John 3, 16. Yeah, it's just different vocabulary. Same concept. We, we can be changed to the place that we start to see God's commandments as something that give us joy and life and liberty. Verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres that that is the one who is really receiving this implanted word with meekness like something can change in us so that we go from being this so like so spiritually clueless that we're comfortable living with this hypocrisy oh i believe in jesus but i just never live the way he calls me to oh i trust everything he said i just trust myself to make better moral judgments for my own life than I trust him. We can't even recognize that hypocrisy. And something can change us to the place that we become the kind of people who look at God's commandment and we say, Lord, thank you for giving me the freedom to walk 
and this path that gives me life and that is a blessing to my neighbors. We can go from people who are full of filth. That's James's word, right? Filth. Jesus used that word too, Mark chapter 7. It's not the food that goes into a person that makes them unclean, but it's what comes out of a person that shows how filthy they are. And Jesus starts to list all kinds of, you know, lust and rage and hmm. James is talking like his brother Jesus. And yet we can be changed. And verse 27 says, we can live out a kind of religious commitment that God the Father says is pure and undefiled. How is it possible that a people whose hearts are this hopeless can experience that kind of redemption. There's a little hint in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Now, if you've been around Christian churches a lot, then hearing God described as Father sounds normal, ordinary. There are only three times in the entire Old Testament where God is labeled Father. Now, there are more passages where God talks about having children, right, and, and the children of Israel. And, but that title, Father, is applied to God only three times in the entire Old Testament. Three times. In Jewish writings outside the Old Testament from the ancient world, I'm only aware of another four. So you take all Jewish writings from, say, 2000 B.C. up through maybe 100 A.D. God is called Father seven times. The book of James, only five chapters, less than 2,000 words. God is called Father three times. As many times as in the entire Old Testament, three times God is called Father. Where did James learn to talk like that? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls God Father 14 times. Left to ourselves, we are hopeless. Jesus is the one who closes the gap between our hopelessness and the redemption that God promises. Jesus is the one who can cleanse us and make us children of the Father so that the Father is delighted to receive our worship and devotion as much as a, as a parent is delighted to receive a gift from a child. Is it because the gift is perfect? Rarely. <laughs> Is it because the gift was so costly? Probably not, because probably they bought it with the money that the parents gave them, right? But you delight in the gift you get from your child because they're your child. Jesus can take us from this hopelessness to becoming children of God the Father. People whose lives and hearts begin to change so that we develop a concern for needy neighbors like orphans and widows and we don't just say we're concerned about it we actually begin to do something 
And at the same time, we have this growing desire to keep ourselves unstained from a world that doesn't honor our Father. Not motivated by rule-keeping, but by love for our Father. That's why the rules are important. That's why we obey, because we love our Father. Jesus can take a group of sinful hypocrites prone to favoritism and anger and division, and He can make us a family. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers. Family, children of the Father. Hey, if you wanted to prove to people that you're a big deal, what name would you drop? Who do you know? Who's your third cousin? What famous movie filmed four blocks over from where you live? Right? What movie star did you almost glimpse when they rode around the corner on their bicycle wearing a cap and sunglasses and you couldn't see their face, but you know it was them? you got a name you drop when you want to make yourself seem like a big deal. What name would you drop? Me and Freddie Freeman, we are like this. <laughs> we have never met. I'm not even sure if he spells his, word, his name with a Y or an I-E, but we, that's not the name I'm going to drop. But everybody's got a name they would drop, right? Here's James saying, you're my beloved brothers and sisters. You are just as much the family of Jesus as I am. Jesus was adopted by my dad, Joseph. But I am no more family of Jesus than you are. Jesus and I were half-brothers. We had the same mother, James could have said. Now, some of you, I know that might be shocking. You've not ever heard of the possibility that Mary had children other than Jesus, but do you see the point? Here's a man who could have said, I'm going to name drop. I am the brother of Jesus. You bunch of hypocrites, get out of my sight. Leave my church. Because I am the brother of Jesus for crying out loud. And James says, you are my dear, beloved family. My father and your father are the same the very first verse of the whole letter, he says, I am James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just a servant. I'm just another Christian. He doesn't say, James, the brother of Jesus, about to put you in your place. Why? Well, if you read Matthew 13, and you read this list of the names of Jesus' brothers, including James, you're reading a list of people who didn't love Jesus or trust him until much later. In fact, all the evidence we can find is that it was only after the death and resurrection of Jesus 
that James began to trust Jesus. James knows what it is to be hopeless and redeemed because of Jesus. Isn't that good news? That's the gospel. And it's all throughout this book of James. This good news that Jesus changes people. So here's your homework assignment for the day. If it takes you all week to do it, that's okay. Ask Jesus today, how do you want me to change? And then tell him, I will follow you no matter how you answer that question. No matter where you take me, I will follow you because I believe you love me enough to change me.